Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of writers and artists over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life and the industry, politics, composition, whatever. If you ask me, songwriters are some of the most worldly and intelligent people I've ever come across. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. Now I'm co-producing this with my friend Joe London, who was nominated for a Grammy earlier this year for Best Country Song. He makes us sound like angels. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, go to Spotify and look up our playlist, And The Writer Is, or go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week's episode is with Desmond Child. If you don't know Desmond Child, you should go on Wikipedia right now. His credits are way too long for me to list in this intro. He's had hits in the last five decades, literally the 70s, 80s, 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. I mean, the guy basically defined Bon Jovi and Ricky Martin. He's had huge hits with Kiss and Joan Jett and Katy Perry and Aerosmith and Michael Bolton. I mean, you don't get into the Songwriter Hall of Fame if you're not writing songs like Living La Vida Loca and Living on a Prayer and The Thong Song. I mean, he's probably the most venerable writer we've had. So without further ado, here is And the Writer Is featuring Desmond Child. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. This week's guest is a songwriting icon. He was inducted in the Songwriter Hall of Fame because he's written hits in five different decades. These hits defined rock and roll Hall of Fame legends like Kiss, Joan Jett, and Bon Jovi. He penned copyrights like Thong Song, Livin' La Vida Loca, and She Bangs. I mean, the guy's recently released songs with Zed and has a number one record with Katy Perry. By way of Nashville, this writer has been an activist and a pioneer of the co-writing game. And the writer is my fellow Hungarian, Desmond Child. Servus. <laughs> I, I just figured I'd throw that in there just so you knew you're at home. Yeah, m- my dad was Hungarian and my mother was Cuban. When did they? Did, are, so are you first generation American? Yes. Yeah. Where did they move from to? They met in Venezuela after World War II. Oh, okay. And so that's how they hooked up, and then I. Now I'm me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my family moved to Nicaragua because they weren't allowed in the U.S. Oh, really? Yeah, Hungarian Jews who yeah needed a place that the since the U.S. wouldn't let them in. Right. That's crazy. Awesome. When did so they, do you speak Spanish? No, my mom speaks 
like with a with a Nicaraguan accent. So whenever we go, like speak Spanish in a Nicaraguan accent. So That's if we, cool. We go places. People are, you know, they turn their head funny, and they 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 somehow figure out that she's not. She speaks fluently, but she's not from Spain. She's not from Mexico. You know, right? Do you speak with a Cuban Cu- accent? Cuban accent, which is super Africanized. Wait, so when did they move to the U.S.? Well, sort of worked out like this. My mom and dad weren't actually married to each other. It was an affair that my mom had. And so um, I didn't really find out who my real father was till I was 18. So in the meantime, uh, we lived a life of poverty in Miami. And, um, you know, the movie Moonlight, sure. you know, those projects. Yeah. That's where I grew up. Wow. That's, was it when you watched that movie, which deals a lot with homosexuality in Miami in the the 80s, right? 90s. Did that, did it feel somehow reminiscent of? Well, first of all, the their apartment in the movie was the, exactly like the one we lived in. Wow. Like exactly. You know, those white walls and the staircase and coming in through the back. I mean, so... You know, my mom was a bohemian, so there were a lot of men coming in and out. It was kind of a very kind of loose scene uh, in those days, but that was the 60s. Yeah. And so, I mean, we, we lived there 14 years. When, s- when you were 18 and you met your dad, and that was, how was that experience? Well, I'd always known about Uncle Joe, kind of friend of the family that would visit with his Hungarian wife. And, um, you know, she was the Holocaust survivor. And, you know, they would, you know, they were always super nice. And he would kind of look at me in this kind of tender way. And so um, at that point, I, when I met him, I had dropped out of high school, Miami Beach High. And I had gone up to Woodstock, New York with my co-writer and we had a, a duo called Night Child. So her name, Virgil Knight, and I'm Desmond Child. So we thought it was cool. And so we were up there for about eight months and we were, you know, got so cold. Our car didn't have heat. It was a Buick with the, the back windshield was like all destroyed. So the air was just like running through. And we would be driving with mittens on, shaking, and uh, working in an apple packing uh, plant with migrant workers from South um, South Carolina. So, I think that my my mom, who never wanted me to find out, finally said, "Okay, go get him." So I met him in New York City, and he told me, and it was kind of kind of a you know one of those. Luke moments, you know, where he says, I am your father. Yeah. <laughs> so um, then from that point on, he coaxed me to going back to Miami, getting my high school equivalency. I managed to graduate with my class. And then I went two years to Miami-Dade College and then two years to NYU, which he paid for all my education. And so you guys ended up with a pretty good relationship Oh yeah, and I, you know, I adored him. He passed away um, in 2004, and in the meantime, uh, the Hungarian government reached out to me, and uh, because they had read in some 
music magazine interview that I did and that was published in Hungary that I I am of Hungarian descent and so they reached out to me and they offered me citizenship. So last year I was I got my dual citizenship and um and June 10th uh, my sons Roman and Nero are going to get in um sworn in as citizens as well. So it's a it's a great thing because I wanted my sons to really feel the 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 Hungarian heritage. I love that. Congratulations. I mean, so it's it's important for in a world where we we are assimilating and you know, I'm I'm a Jew married to a Lebanese woman, you know, it's like these things are important for our future children to learn about where we come from. I think exactly. it's easy to get lost in the homogenizing of people, but it's still important to pay some homage to your heritage. Exactly. And so I'm I'm also very strong with my mother's side because my mother was a songwriter and um, she got a lot of cuts. I mean, she my was mom, a professional songwriter? She was. She was signed to Peer International and she was a BMI writer her whole, whole entire life. Ironically, I'm an been an ASCAP writer, and next year will be my 40th anniversary. And um, I'm also on the board of ASCAP. But my mom was BMI all the way. Why did uh, you go ASCAP? I didn't think about it. I was with managers at the time, and they knew somebody at ASCAP and signed me up. And I didn't think twice about it. I I had a song that was going to be big, Um, I Was Made for Loving You. So that's when I got all signed up in 1978. So, okay, let's go back. When you were saying you went up to New York with your co-writer, and from then that's somewhere in 1970s, right? That was 1970. Um, wow. No, it was like, yeah, 1970. It was something like that. No, no, no. It was 1971. So you were saying a co-writer. So you were writing through your childhood because your mom's a writer. So yeah. Were I, you playing piano? Were you yes, just singing just around piano. the house or piano? And and my mom played guitar. So I never. I don't know. It was like maybe one of those things because she played guitar. I didn't learn guitar. I just played piano. Right. And um, you know, my mom struggled her whole life to get cuts, and you know, she got a lot of cuts, but we never got paid. Why? You know, because it just wasn't a flow. Right. You know, it just, it, that's the way it was. Sure. And so um, when she passed away five years ago, I uh, helped to found the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame. And Great. although she may never be inducted, she's the, uh, a statue of her is the, the uh, statuette that we give as the award. It's called La Musa. And um, it was, a, it was a, based on a sculpture that, was done of her in when around the time when I was born and and so um it's a very beautiful sculpture and so we have our we're going into our fifth anniversary uh which is um uh, the gala is going to be October 19th at the James L Knight Center in Miami cool and you know it's we're modeled after the songwriters hall of fame where I'm also on the board there and the, and the Latin songwriters hall of fame was my committee Right. But it turned into an organization unto itself. So, so I have this whole strong Hungarian thing. This year, actually, I wrote a song um, 
for the anniversary of the 1956 revolution. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, uh, was very kind to me and also v- very inclusive of our, our family, our you know, alternative family, and was very sweet and, and, and embraced us and um, gave me the opportunity. And uh, Andreas Carlson and I co-wrote this big theme based on a song that we had already uh, written called Steps of Champions, and we adapted it with one of the top um, Hungarian um, lyricists, uh, Thomas Orban, not related, but his last name's Orban. And this thing is fantastic. It was like a We Are the World, and it's all filmed. It's all on, um, it's all on the... I can't pronounce the title of it. Do you speak Hungarian? <laughs> Nem. Just, I know a few words. Yeah, it's I don't a even really know, hard language. I don't even know curse words. I don't even know how to say, like, you know, dick or something in Hungarian. <laughs> um, I like um, that dick is the, <laughs> the curse word. But anyway, our song has over yeah. two million views. I think it's one of the, the most viewed Hungarian songs ever in history. Does that change your, you know, when you've had, I mean, we'll go through some of the songs, but... And you've had so many songs that have been just so unbelievably massive. When at this point, when you have you know a national song, does that have a different weight to it than oh yeah? I mean, having I, I was just thinking about my father the whole time and how proud he would have been. Yeah, um, and it was so sweet because we went to his grave in Budapest, and I went with my sons, and we you know my sons like washed it down polished it and we put flowers and candles and stuff it was like so sweet and because i think it's you know for me because my origins were kind of you know kind of not clear uh it was very important to me that my sons know where they came from yeah and their heritage yeah. so um you know they they they're wonderful and we're we're going back there this summer right and um you know i i love doing workshops um, for young songwriters. And so I did one last year, a master class, and I'll be doing them again. And my hope is to bring Hungarian songwriters to the U.S. to work and to also bring, you know, writers from here over there to interact. Because, you know, the Swedes are the perfect example of how they just, you know, first of all, they know incredible English. 90% of the Swedish population speaks flawless English. Yeah. Where in Hungary, it's the opposite. It's only 10% of the population speaks English. And the language is very strong, so the the accent is very um, difficult to manage. But I think that there's, they've also been isolated. You know, 60 years of Soviet domination did a number on them, and they're landlocked, they're kind of in. And it's very important to me to bring Hungarian music and and you know contemporary yeah. uh, to to come and and compete, you know. And I always point to you know uh, Dennis Pop and Max Martin, how hard they worked and how excellent they you know Max. I mean Dennis passed away, but um, Max is and and his work ethic. It's just incredible. I just admire that so much. And that's something Hungarians relate to because they're very hard workers. But right now, you know, it doesn't seem like like they have enough resources. 
And so that's my, that's one of my things that I want. That's, that's a mission of mine. Well, you you have a few missions. I know you've talked a lot. Of, I mean, we were saying before we even started this, you were talking about how important it is to give songwriters credit. To get, you know, it's not just Hungarian songwriters; it's all songwriters. And how important in, in an era where you have a lot of people who um, essentially get songwriting credit but aren't really songwriters, and how you help define who's who and how copyrights work and whatnot. But you, you're so. Um, you're very vocal about how songwriters and top liners are defined in a way. Well, the true definition of what constitutes a copyright is melody and the lyric. And in fact, some songs don't have lyrics, but you can't have a song without the melody. Right. It wouldn't be a song. Yeah, it'd be like a cough or a sneeze or something. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, the the point is this: that in our very highly competitive sonic world, the guys that you used to be able to pay as arrangers began, you know, being very important to whether you could have a hit record because their sounds and and the beats that they were making and that they are making uh, are driving the commercial sound of the song. So then the successful ones began saying, hey, you know what? You can't just pay me a fee. You have to cut me into the copyright of the song. Right. But technically, it's not their arrangement that is the copyright. It's the melody and the lyrics, not even the chords, because you can harmonize a song every which way in my major, minor, jazzy, uh, classical, and it's still the same song. Sure. So it helps put power back into what what songwriters are versus producers in a way. It's like a power shift. Right. Well, but what happened was that you know, like myself, I I was a I was an artist and then I co-wrote a song with Paul Stanley. Um I was lucky, you know, we said, "Okay, you write a song for me and I'll write a song for you." So and this is this is we're late 1970s. Set 1978. I was made for loving you. Yeah, and is so like, is a is a trade off you and Paul Stanley. Yeah, but I got the better end of the deal. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> because he he and I wrote a song uh, with David Landau called uh, "The Fight," that was on my first record, and then were you an assigned artist at the time? Yes, with my group Desmond Child and Rouge. Yeah, and so then the trade off was you know I write a song with him for how Kiss. did you meet meet Paul Stanley? He was a fan of ours. So at that time, we were uh, kind of playing the small clubs and cabarets, and we had become a sensation. Where were you based out of at that point? N- New York City. Uh-huh. So we, I had gone there to, to NYU, and my dad was you know, bankrolling me. And all I, I didn't even do homework. All I did was make, do songs and go and play in clubs. And, and with, my, with these three girls, and one of them was my girlfriend, Maria Vidal. I have an interesting story about her because at the time she was kind of helping to support me as well. You know, my dad was, you know, he was born in the depression and all that. So his idea of bankrolling me was $250 a month. That was it in, in, in New, New York, York City. City right? Yeah. So, so, you know, um, you know, Maria came up from Miami. We had met at, at Miami Dade 
along with uh, a friend of ours, Diana Griselli. And then I had met another girl when I was up in Woodstock, uh, Miriam Valley. And so we, we, we created this singing group. And it was really revolutionary for its time because we were combining R&B and dance music with guitars and, and singer-songwriter uh, lyrics telling stories. And it's it's all the same stuff that I did later with Bon Jovi and with Ricky Martin. Yeah, you know we had some Latin sounds. We had you know congas, and we were trying it was a to good do foreshadow of sort of the eclectic. Uh, yeah, a kind of Latino urban, you know, thing, whatever. The record company didn't understand us whatsoever that we signed to Capitol Records. They were all about Bob Seger at the time and Taste of Honey. And so we sort of got left in the dust and we made two albums. One was this very pop album, beautiful pop record. Then the next record was like all punk uh, oriented and they were released six months apart. People didn't know what to think of us. We we did a whole tour of the U.S. and we appeared on Saturday Night Live on wow. the Christmas of 1979 with the original cast. You know, and so... We were meteoric, and then at that time, then I kind of also, our second album was about this. I realized I was more gay than I was straight, and so Maria and I broke up. But yet, we were still Desmond and Maria, the, the ones that put this group together. And so it was very difficult, you know, touring, you know, and all that, because the, the tour only paid for one room for us to sleep in together. Right. <laughs> you know, sure. so it was a nightmare. Right. <laughs> but um, you know, we it was very difficult to continue the group after when, that. Being out of the were you out of the closet or were you just well, out of the closet? To let's her? just let's just put it this way. The opening song of, of Runners in the Night, our second album, is called The Truth Comes Out. <laughs> right. Okay. So then, Paul. Paul so, <laughs> Just read the the lyrics on that, and you'll see what I'm talking but in, about. But in in 1979, that's that's ahead of its time to be open. I mean, so many rock stars, so many songwriters were closeted. I mean, we can name a lot of them that were closeted for 20, 30 years beyond that. I mean, w you had the confidence to come out at that point. Where did the other bands that you're working with? Did you know you're talking about really masculine bands in a way? I guess Kiss isn't particularly masculine, but, but we, you, know, you said it, <laughs> I didn't. But you know, like, like when you're talking about Kiss and you're talking about Bon Jovi, you're talking about Aerosmith. These are are you know sex Aerosmiths? icons. No, right, true, exactly. I guess it, yeah, I keep trying. No, no, maybe that's a, maybe that's the point. Maybe it's it's like it, it, Joan yeah. Jett. Right. Hello? Right. I mean, you know, they always kind of threw the kind of, you know, androgynous weirdos to me. Alice Cooper. Right. You know. It's me, funny it, when you say, well, now that we're talking about it, it kind of like, it kind of shows it. Cher? <laughs> yeah, right. Cher? Hello? Yeah. What could be more gay than Cher? <laughs> so the, you, it actually was, maybe it was even an advantage that people felt comfortable no matter what around you? Is that what it, cause, Well, I mean, you could look at it this way. I the guys knew that they could leave me in the kitchen with their wife and I wasn't going to be fucking them when they went to the the 12 step, you know, meeting. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. And in and the so, and, yeah, and, and in and the then 1980s, I'd always help them with their decorating and stuff. Cuz I'm <laughs> multi you can both do melodies and the and the yeah, living room. <laughs> well, you know. Well, that's why I call it living room on a prayer. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the 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 thing is, is that charm has a lot to do with success. Yeah, I mean, some people aren't charming at all, and they're super successful, but maybe they're more talented. Right. You know. <laughs> but um, with me, I coming up from where I did in the ghetto, it's like you know, you hustle. There's a hustle. And so you use everything you've got. And it can't be inauthentic. You have to really, you, you know, take the shine off your soul, you know, to make it real. And you have to commit yourself. And, you know, as you, and, and it's an attitude. It's like, I love everybody I meet. You right. Know? And, you know, I, I, I have very few people that don't like me or in, that I don't a, like them. In the process of actually writing because okay, I don't even know how to go through the list of songs is so is so ridiculous. I mean, you start in you have, you know, I was made for loving you, and and, not, and then you start doing a bunch of records with Cher. You do all these records. I mean, from nineteen seventy nine, I guess you're still probably in your band then for a few years after nineteen seventy nine. No, no, or did you we, quit right just, right away? As soon as I, like you have this massive Kiss record, yeah. you're like, oh, I'm out because I had met. Um, Bruce Springsteen's manager and and producer, kind of in a way, uh, John Landau, right? And he really believed in me, so he didn't as a writer or as, as a, a star, as a, as a person, you know. Yeah. And he told me, you know, you're the only other person I'd ever consider managing, and so he believed in me, um, and, and so, but Springsteen just ate up all his time, so I would go every few weeks and sit with him, and we would talk about. You know, how he made, you know, Jackson Brown's record, The Pretender, or how he was making, you know, uh, Darkness at the Edge of Town or Born to Run or whatever. And I was just waiting, waiting, waiting. So he didn't like the girls. He didn't think that that was cool. He thought that was cabaret and corny. Meanwhile, Prince and everybody later all had, you know, doing exactly that, you know, with corsets and makeup and all this kind of stuff. I didn't have a strong because of how I grew up. I did, I was looking for a father figure, so it's like if he told me that they're no good, then they're no good. Right. And so I didn't believe in what I had created. So that's been a thing for me as is as an artist. I think it was very hard for me to say who I am. In a way, I can surreptitiously be myself, pouring all of my creativity into somebody else. Right. And you and you can in in a way diversify all those emotions in a different way. I, well, I feel like when you write with all different artists, there's a place, a personal aspect to all these different songs. But if you were the if you were the artist, you wouldn't necessarily touch on all those all those different emotions no, the no. same way. I'd be neurotically looking for my next single and desperately calling people to write me a hit. Right. <laughs> because once you get into something like that, it's 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 actually kind of a terrible curse to be famous. You know, the glory is so brief, and the pressure, and I see it, and I deal with it all the time. And you know, what made somebody famous usually was when they just sponta- spontaneously they were some they did something fresh. They were themselves. And then everybody expected them to be that and be that and be that until they didn't want it anymore. And then they lost themselves. Yeah. So I deal, I've dealt with that, you know, condition many, many times with very successful people that have come to me and I've helped to revive their career. 
but even before you help revive them, you you kind of help. It, there are a lot of people who make a career out of reviving careers, but not a lot of people can make a career. And when well, you think you know, about if you go to like, uh, you know, if you if you look at the Bon Jovi records, and we don't have to just talk about Bon Jovi. It's 1986, but you end up with Living on a Prayer. You give love a bad name, bad medicine, along with a bunch of others. But any any one of those is a life changing song for an artist, mm-hmm, let mm-hmm. alone three just yeah. massive songs. I mean, at that point, are you? Um, does that change the pressure well, for you as a writer, where you feel like you have to compete with the kind of pressure the artists have, or was that freeing? I mean, you had had hits before that, but those kind of feel like that blows the doors open. I don't know how I did it. Actually, but I did do it, and I managed. Were you in the room with them? Of course, yeah. There was no transfer of the files, right? There was like, pass me, you know, the coffee. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, You know, I was just driven to make it because I wanted to. Also, you know, I I love my mother very much, and you know, I wanted to make sure that I could always support her and take care of her, and which I did. And she lived like a queen till the end of her life. You know, so I'm very proud of that. Oh, I'm sure. And. you know, and also I'm com- I'm competitive. You know, I guess it's that's the Hungarian part. It's like I I want it, and I still wake up like that. I mean, I wake up going, "Am I still in the ghetto?" Oh no, pew! Thank God, I better get up and start making those emails. And you know, did you worry the way? Did you worry throughout the whole process that this was your last song? This is your last paycheck? Do you feel, do you, is that worrying or is that? When you're an independent songwriter, yes, yeah, every day is the start of your career again. Yeah. You're, nobody gives a fuck about what the hit you had last week because after number one, there's no down. I mean, then it's down. Yeah. And and especially in this world, in France, like if you did something once that was great, people like see you on the street and they they you know make way for you. Like you could have done something forty years ago and you're revered, you know, like Jerry Lewis or something like that. Um, here it's like so uh, you know you'll be in a in a meeting with an A and R guy and there he's like checking his phone and you know checking his screen and you know he's looking he's looking at you and so uh when was your last hit it's like oh well um last year i had a hit with zed it was number one uh edm or something oh no i mean but i mean what did you do like this year you're like i'm in the songwriter hall of fame slap slap (laughs) (laughs) i mean i feel like like, you should just wear your like wear a medal around or just like a name tag (laughs) like when like he, when I met Buzz Eldrin, El, Eldrin sorry, he he was wearing the congressional medal, a presidential medal yeah. of honor, like around. He's, his neck. he's the second person to walk on the moon. He <laughs> should. I feel like it's offensive for him not to, in a way. like at least a tattoo on his neck. He or was something. fantastic. Something he for sure can't hide. Well, um, anyway, I mean, we're we're kind of talking about a lot of things all over the place, but you know what made me was this feeling like I don't want to go back to the ghetto to Liberty City, where I grew up. And, you know, it was a lot of suffering because poverty sucks, man. It's ugly. It's dangerous. It doesn't taste good. It's boring, terribly boring. And it's frustrating. And, I mean, it's terrible things. 
It's hot. The air conditioner is not working. The car is broken with no gas. So now you got to walk seven blocks to where you can get a bus, three buses to wherever you want to go. Right. You know, and it takes hours and hours to get there. Or standing in line with my grandfather trying to get the Cuban refugee food in the heat. My grandfather had lung cancer. And he's, you know, he's there still smoking and we're standing in lines for hours just to get a box full of, you know, dried egg yolks and, you know, rice and flour and and, uh, spam and cheese. And my aunts were like master chefs of how to make that stuff taste like food. And so, you know, it's like, I don't want to go back there. When did you realize that you, you probably aren't going back there? Was there ever a point? Was it, you know, no, man, everybody can go upside down. Anybody can go upside down. I mean, friends of mine have gone upside down. They lived too large and they were kind of, they started keeping their studios and their engineers and everybody going. And they went on credit lines and they took mortgages against their house and this and that. And then, you know what? They didn't have another hit. Yeah. So anybody can have anybody, you know, I at one point in Miami, I had 12 employees, four studios. We were like, you know, we lived, you know, four blocks from Ricky Martin and it was convenient for him. And we became a Ricky Martin factory. We once had seven studios going with the same song. She bangs, you know, because I wasn't even the producer and they they kind of dumped it on me to straighten out because, you know, uh, Walter A. and Draco had enough of that song, and so you know, it, it took it took me like two weeks to untangle it. They gave me 250 takes of uh, tracks of of all different things, yeah. five different sets of background vocals done with different people. You know, until so how did you? You know, when when are you? Um, how do you write in that environment? I mean, there's. It's one thing where you start in a room that's all white walls and you're with your mom and she's playing guitar and you learn how to play piano and you write a song. That's something everyone can relate to. How does how are you able to to actually function creatively when you start having the pressure of having whatever seven studios running at once? Are you at all able to actually write a lyric that Well, I did write moves? the lyric. But that was when I wrote the lyric. And then I had to get Ricky in to produce the vocal. Yeah. And then I had to try to get Draco to come in and help with the background vocals. And at that time, he was, you know, thinking about his own music. He was like over it, you know. And, um, you know, so it was a difficult time. But I made it happen. And they also only gave me a month to make the record. And this is all the way in. It was like he comes off the road, his voice is shot, and I even got in trouble with, um, you know, uh, the head of Sony of Columbia Records. No, it was, I think it was Epic. No, Columbia Records. I got in trouble with Donnie Einer because in an interview I said, you know, I, I don't think they're giving us enough time to make this record. They're just cranking it out. And, you know, to, to, it feels like they just want to cash in. And he got so pissed, I got like on the the blacklist of Sony and never got hired there again. Had you done? Uh, uh, <laughs> did you? Was that after living La Vida Loca, or was that after? But Donnie was also the one that called me and said, "You know what? I, we love this song, but do you think you could write it in English?" And I said, "It is in English." What? I said, "Every word is in English except for living La Vida Loca." 
Vira, La, and Loca, whatever. Vida, living, it's just three words are in Spanish. Everything else is in English. Even her skin's the color of mocha. Mocha's not a Spanish word. Right. You know, it's like, really? Oh, well, you know. And so then when they released the song, it said, Living La Vida Loca, and then big letters underneath it said, Living, living the Crazy Life. He said, oh, No one wow. will ever understand that. I said, They will. Because have you ever gone to Pollo Loco? Right. Because when I went to write the uh, the lyrics, I said, you know, they wanted a Spanglish song. I said, but what words are like easy to remember? So I managed. I managed it. Where Where were you when you wrote that? I in at one of my studios of the four studios, um, you know, with uh, Draco, and then we were so lucky to have Randy Cantor there. He was our arranger, and he came up with this kind of like uh, Rat Pack. Uh, like, so, yeah, uh, he came up with this Rat Pack thing, um, feel because Sinatra had died that year. So we're listening to Sinatra like over and over again everywhere we went. So, and we had this vision of Ricky being the Latin. Frank Sinatra. El, more like Elvis Rat Pack, you know, kind of like, uh, Vegas, sure. you know, kind of thing, right? And when, they went to make the video. They 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 copied the black uh, Elvis outfit, and he did the Elvis uh, hips and moves, and it all worked. I mean, incredibly. I feel like you go through phases looking at the the hits, where some of them are you have like these moments of really emotional songs. You know, Joan Jett, "I Hate Myself for Loving You," and and you have Michael Bolton, "How Can We Be Lovers," and it's these really emotional concepts. And then you go into a phase of doing Livin' La Vida Loca, She Bangs, Thong Song. Is that intentional? Were there points in your life where you're like, what's cool right now are songs that are dramatically emotional and they say something? Or is it just how you felt during the day and that artist? I never have been a person like, oh, what's cool right now? Because that to me is deadly. I just... You know, I'm in life. I'm li- listening to stuff, so obviously I'm influenced by, you know, what I'm listening to, and inspired by new things I hear. But when you're in the weeds, you're in a kind of in my world. It's like a creative circle. It's a sacred place. You go in there and you start. You open the container and you start pulling stuff out, and you keep chasing it and chasing it and chasing it till you can't anymore. Till you have to abandon the the song, and then, for better or for worse, that's what you turn in. Sure. That's how I look at it. Because there's always a better line. I, so many times I listen to sh- something on the radio. It's like it should have been <laughs> and not but. Yeah. Why did I put but in that song? What has nothing to do with the previous line? You know. And so sometimes one can get myopic, and then many years later, go back and say that was crap. Right. <laughs> but. The 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 point is this is that I'm very much about I can really bear down on the moment, the vertical moment, with you know, you here. I'm I'm here with you. I'm not somewhere else in my mind. And I could sit here for three days if you want me to. Except that, you know, we I have should. something else to do. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) we can have our own little well. The stories, the the stories you have about 
I mean, being with these artists in their prime and that are, are all over the Hall of Fame, you know, the, the shares and Bon Jovi's and Kiss and Michael Bolden and Aerosmith. I mean, it's not, it's that thing where you're saying the revival. That sounds the, more like the Wax Museum. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know. You know, I've been very, very lucky in my, in my career. First of all, to be born to a mother that was a songwriter. So she was writing songs when I was just at her feet, crawling. And then when I got old enough to speak, I would start saying, you know, singing along and telling her different lyrics to write, you know. And so... Was she I, asking you? No. It was like, get away, get away. Did and she have, like, her math? Did she have her, like, the way she would talk com- about math? Was she, as a writer, did she have her philosophy? Well, she wrote in a Cuban bolero style. So she was into writing... Like, you know, how Diane Warren writes these incredible ballads. My, and in fact, my mom and, you know, that's why I'm so close to Diane. She reminds me so much of my mother. So my mom was a bit, you know, like Diane, just obsessed and kind of ADD. And all she cared about was writing songs. And wherever she went, she had tapes and lyrics in her purse. And she was hoping she'd run into a singer at a beauty parlor and she'd lay the song on them. And she was, you know... This was relentless. Real yeah. There was a real hustle because she wanted to give us a better life. Yeah. She wasn't able to, but I was able to fulfill her dream in a way. So in a way, when you have a mother like that, it's kind of like you are, you know, it's like, it's like a, she wasn't a mom. She was like, we were partners, you know, in a way, kind of in life. And so the thing is, is that, um, Aside from that, I had amazing mentors, like a very kind lady in Ecuador that when I went for the summer uh, taught me how to play piano on this big old brown upright piano. I mean, like, I knew how to pick and pack, but she actually gave me piano lessons. And, um, I, you know, she passed away two years ago at, in in 91. I I always stayed friends with her. She was a, she was a, a coloratura soprano. When I was in high school, her name was Marie Louise Leeds, and she had retired, and she her husband was an art collector, and so I'd go in, and so all the high school kids they were came from rich families. They went to her for voice lessons. The kids in the choir, so they were always talking about it. So I went and I knocked on her door, and I said, "Well, I'd like to take voice lessons. The only thing is I don't have any money." And she said, "Okay, well, I'll teach you for free, but." You have to promise me not to smoke, not to drink, and not to take any drugs. So I made the promise, and that's probably why I'm still alive. So you stayed sober through all those 80s yeah. and 90s years? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, yes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm I mean, not I'll, dr- I'll drink because- a glass of wine or a mojito or something somewhere, but I don't like being tipsy. You know, I like being in control all the time and like... Thinking my thoughts, like my thoughts are more interesting when I'm sober than when I'm tipsy, you know, inside my own head. Like I, I, I wrote with Bon Jovi last year and he was telling me a story about this guy who was basically like OD'd on his couch when he was 18 in Malibu and he's got his house and he's got like some of these other neighboring bands that were living in the houses kind of nearby where everyone was doing drugs and he was like, he didn't want to do drugs, which is why he and his his wife moved back east because he was like, these these guys are not, they're they're living a different life than he wanted to lead. But it seemed like that, that era... Yeah, that was the early the, 90s. There's so much, mon- there's so much money in... 
there was so much money then in in the music industry. I assume, right? Yes. That it's if like you're successful, are, yes. Yeah. But the the thing is, you know, having amazing mentors, you know, having this lady teach me how to sing, and she taught, you know, she would teach me. And they weren't like hour lessons. These things were like four hours long. Life lessons, history, the whole World War II, what she and her family went through, everything. I mean, it was just like the lights, the sun would go down, we'd forget to even turn on the lights, we'd be sitting in the dark. You know, I was mesmerized with her stories. And then after that, my next mentor was uh, Sandra Seacat, an incredible acting coach that she still is coaching uh, Andrew Garfield for the last 10 years, Jessica Lange, uh, Harvey Keitel. And I joined her class. And Were you acting? Or you joined her class as I just, like a... I just wanted to be a, see how she worked with, with people. And that taught me how to work with artists. Just being a fly on the wall. And I did scenes with Jessica Lange. And, um, you know, in, in our class was Jessica, uh, Christopher Reeves, um, oh my God, Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, Francis Fisher. Um, is this before they had done stuff, or this they were while st- they no, were they doing were they were working. Things. Yeah, I mean, some people were more f- further along than others. Jessica had just done King Kong, you wow. know, and she was, and or she had just done Postman, and she was getting ready to do Francis and uh, Country and all these amazing, you know, Oscar nominated parts. When is this? This is nineteen seventy nine. Okay. When I was leaving my group, I decided, you know, I, I, I just started going to these classes. Lawrence Bender was there, who's a college student. He's the producer of Pulp Fiction and Inconvenient Truth and all this. He was there. Um, in fact, I'm going to see him this afternoon. I mean, the, the, the acting culture teaches you how to be, have constructive criticism rather than just putting stuff down. It allows you to communicate with the people around you because you have to be in a scene together and you have to interact in a different way than when, it, when you're in a session and someone's like, I don't like that. That's, that's the end of the thought process. But if you're in a session and somebody says, I think you can beat that or what if you were to take this and move well, it over no, here? Well, no, it's not like that. You don't feel like that? Not the way she was teaching. Well, how did she teach? Well, she came from the Lee Strasberg's actors in uh, actors studio, and she parted ways with Lee because he kind of was very hard on people and kind of berated them to get them to cry. Let's say, and they said, "Okay, now do the scene," and then of course they'd be you know split open. But her approach is is a kind of um, much more kind of uh, zen you know, the being of acting, you know, and it's not acting, it's being and kind of like you find you find the character inside yourself and you start to, you know, find your way yeah. into it. And so then then once you, you're with your creative imagination, you fill up the, the, the gap and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're crying, you're screaming, you're like, you know, picking up a knife or gun or whatever because you aren't acting. And so one of her top, um, um, well, most famous actors is Mickey Rourke, who um, I went to high school with. Oh, cool. You know, so he was just kind of leaving her world when I was with, with coming in, but we saw each other, you know, a lot through Sandra. 
And Does that acting allow you to be? I mean, in all the different artists that you've worked with, it's a lot of it's a lot of acting. I mean, singers are actors. You know, you're more of a screenwriter. Well, that's a, the whole thing. When I um, work with singers, most of the time they're just like unfurling the lyrics, you know, and putting them up on the music stand, and they're reading as they're singing. I mean, no one's going to feel anything unless you're feeling something when you sing it, because right. our voices. It isn't just like sing pretty and this is how the song goes or sing scratchy because it sounds like that would sound good to sing scratchy on this one word. It's like the people who are great, like Adele, she's living and breathing those vocals. She's feeling the words that she's singing. And you feel that because it's communicating like a a baby crying. You know, or a bird call or a dog, a dog howling. You know, those are real sounds. And somebody who's singing and feeling what they're singing, immersing themselves into it, creating in that four minutes the world of the point of creation of the writers and then their interpretation, it's art. And it's the art of singing. No, nobody seems to understand that. Not in the world of Pro Tools. It's like, oh, it's cool. Like, you know, just sing this. And then they're like, even the wrong notes are like pitched into shape. Sure. I mean, I've been doing all those tricks myself, you know, and we had like what we called slow tools, um, <laughs> you know, one of the first like satellite studios. And in fact, we made recording history by being the first, uh, Live in La Vida, Vida, Live in La Vida Loca was the first production and song to be completely done in the box to reach number one. Wow. And that was in the report in the Wall Street Journal. So this was in Miami, and it was 19 breakdowns a day. And I was, I kind of uh, cut my teeth with an artist named Billy Myers. I think she had a nervous breakdown from it. Yeah, she, she couldn't handle it. She couldn't handle all those breakdowns and stops and starts and, oh, my God. Yeah, and you're in the middle of cutting a vocal. All of a sudden, you're like, ah. Yeah. Hold on. I, yeah, it's not working. Like, what the... F- and, it, and, you know. and and computers didn't turn on the way and, that they do then, now. Then, then it's then, like you have to Then the engineers, it. like, on the phone with, with Pro Tools giving them the, the note, and then they're sending us a revision, and then we're like, like, you know, guinea pigs. But I was determined on that, and I had brought a Nashville producer, um, Mark Bright, who ended up producing Carrie Underwood, um, uh, and you know has a fantastic career producing her, and he he came down and for some song camp or something that I was doing, and I said, "Listen, this is the future. Nashville has got to all get on board with Pro Tools." And he said, "That'll never happen in Nashville. Within one year, all those machines were out in the hallway. Yeah, and everyone was like look, reading that Pro Tools manual like crazy." Yeah. And he then later said, "You're right," but it, you know, he it, to him, his... to him, it was like, you know, just that's not not in Nashville. We're real. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know? Late 90s, <laughs> early 2000s, when people are really in denial about what MP3s are, what what streaming is, what digital music is, and there's well, either the past. How did you evolve from, when you're talking about five decades, you're talking about seven, 70s where people are, are selling vinyl through tapes, CDs, MP3s. What, like, how do you view the way people record and how we listen to music? Well, I'm in it, so I'm doing it, and I think it's all good. I mean, back in the early days, uh, you know, we didn't have these kind of, you know, high-def, um, processing things. So I was a little bit still going to the studio, cutting tracks and then transferring them to Pro Tools and editing them there, thinking that it was still going to sound better than if we had just recorded them straight to Pro Tools. So I went to Criteria and I did the test with the drum set, da 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 da. I mean, we spent a lot of money on this test. I think it was Kenny Aronoff, and we yeah. said, okay. We Great have drummer. okay. We played through the song. We had the tapes going. We had the Pro Tools recording at the same time. I said, "Okay, let's all just sit back, A and B this shit." No one could tell the difference. No, one. no one. Not even Kenny. No, no one Kenny. could tell the difference. Yeah. It's the only thing I miss is like that fabulous reverb. We don't. We're not getting that. I don't care how many you know plugins you do that fantastic reverb that we could get at the record plan or media sound that these were rooms and and you know where the reverb the with the mics in there and all that we're not getting that and i think the vocals are less for it they just do not sound as good interesting um your your last big pop number 1 is the Katy Perry Waking Up in Vegas, right? Yes. I know um, we talked about Zed and whatnot, but every time you have one of these hits, um, does it feel different at this point than the Kiss hit, which no, is your it's first? it's always exciting. Are there moments in it where you, you know, I guess your first hit, I can imagine that it's it's sort of something where uh, you kind of feel like they'll continue to come, and then in... I don't know if that's if that's true. It, it, I guess we already kind of talked about how you don't feel like um, that. You feel like you have to keep pushing and pushing because you're Hungarian, and that's what we do. But yeah. when you have these recent hits, do you look back and recognize the how many hits you've had, or is it individual? How do you feel about having hits now? I'd love to. Will you help me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Next trip to Nashville. <laughs> We're into it. Um, you know, I I just don't think about the past. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, sometimes if somebody pisses me off, you know, excuse me. Right. 
Don't you know who I was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hear, you know, I guess that comes with being old and wisdom. And you, I hear people say things and I sometimes I just stay silent because, you know, I've lived so long. I've seen every, you know, seen them coming and going. Yeah. Diane and I used to, uh, Diane Warren and I used to joke that, um, you know, there's this old Buddhist saying that, maybe it's not Buddhist, but it's like if you sit by the side of the river long enough, you'll see the bodies of your enemies float by. And we we said we sat by the river long enough to see Michael Bolton's hair float by. That's <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> funny. <laughs> that guy's great. He sat at a, a. I was at a wedding. He sat next to me at a wedding recently. He's hilarious. And he's his, yeah, he's hilarious. You know, I love his sense of humor. Yeah. And um, yeah. we, you know, we had great fun cutting the songs that we did. All right, I'm going to list five things. Just say what comes off the top of your head. And um, I'm just curious. Kiss. Well, behind it all was Hungarian, right? Yeah. Gene. That drive, man, you know, he's amazing. And and Paul was the visionary and Gene was the driver. I mean, still is. I mean, I just admire those guys so much because they are another team that they didn't take drugs they didn't believe in the image that they were creating those were characters and the songs were written with very strict rules you know they could never be victims they had to be winners they had to conquer and to this day you listen to the songs and people are uplifted by them yeah and both of them are fantastic writers and so i i wrote co-wrote the songs I did with Kiss, not with Gene, but with Paul. So Paul would kind of regroup with his group of writers like Jean Beauvoir and, you know, others. And then Gene had his his own troupe and then they'd come and throw, you know, the best song, may the best songs win. And um, it worked for them like that. And I think they co-wrote some st- a lot of stuff together too. Yeah. But fantastic uh, professionals. And, you know, they went on tour with Aerosmith and they're the ones that made money. Why? Aerosmith, every guy in the band had to have his own car. They were all smushed into one little van. You know? They they did their own makeup. Yeah. They, like, their amount of people that were kind of, their roadies and all that was like a fourth of what everybody else's was. They worked it out. And they're, they made money. And they continue to, and they're relentless packaging packaging uh, that's really interesting so it's fantastic well, one of so my, that, admire them my next one was Diane Warren well last night I was at the ASCAP um, pop awards this is 2017 for those of you in the future <laughs> wondering um, and she was uh, given the founders award and you know they did this kind of retrospective of her music, which, you know, she has timeless songs. I'll never forget when she called me up one day and she said, you know, I came up with this title. Do you think it's stupid? And I said, what is it? She says, she said, unbreak my heart. Doesn't that sound kind of like unbreak, you know, like, like kind of like too country or something? I said, no, no, that sounds cool. Do it. Write that song. And she did. And she like conquered with it. It was like Insane. with Tony Braxton. 
And then I, you know, her songs are very personal. Like her song, Because You Love Me, that Celine Dion recorded was all about her dad, who she loved very much. He was like the single only person in her life that believed in her. And I got to meet him and uh, like way in the beginning and then he passed away and she really suffered, you know, uh, when he was gone. And so she she's a very special person. I mean, she's a genius, a musical and lyric genius unto herself. She is driven. Yeah, she is. And she's relentless. You know, she, you know, she spent so much time on the phone making sure her song stayed on the record. She'd, you know, do crazy things. You know, uh, gosh, I have a great story. We were both after the theme song for uh, a share movie called Burlesque. And so I wrote a song and I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, it, the director didn't like it. So I don't think Cher even got to hear it. She wrote another song, and the director didn't like it. And so she, you know, didn't give up. And she had a CD of it with her at all times, and she saw it at store on Melrose, um, uh, Lori Rodkin, who's yeah. Cher's best friend. And, she, and Lori was looking at Leather Jacket. You know, and kind of walked away, and, she, and Diane rushed up and said, "Do you like that jacket? Oh yeah, I love it, but it's too expensive. I could never buy it." She says, "It's yours." And Diane is notoriously cheap, and for Diane to actually buy something, she bought this four thousand dollar jacket like on the spot. He said, and she said, "Oh my God, you're so nice. Why are you doing this?" I said, and she said, "Well, I want you to play this for share in your car. Make her get in your car and play it in the car." And she did, and Cher loved the song, and she was really pissed off that they didn't play it for her. And then the director dug in his heels and said, you know, I'm not making a movie with that song in it. I don't like it. And Cher said, well, then you're, I'm not going to be in your movie if I don't sing that song. And, Unreal. And she got in, and I didn't. I gave up on my, on my dream. She didn't give up on hers, and that taught me so much. So last night in the in the program, I I took out an ad to her. It said, "Hats off, a uh, low bow to you, uh, a low deep bow to you, Diane. You're always a threat. <laughs> That's why I love you. I love it. Wow. Um, you got to do Bon Jovi. When I met Bon Jovi, they they had a, you know very dynamic, legendary manager Doc McGee." And so somehow, you know, I, I got a chance to go and write with them. They had had kind of a not so um, successful second record, 7,800 Fahrenheit or something like that. Yeah. And um, I went out to New Jersey and rent a car because I was living in New York. And we went to Richie's parents' house, which, there, which is where they were co-writing in the basement. And... Um, I got their little house, and it was in a kind of like at the end of this little cul-de-sac, and behind them was marshes, and at the very like far away were the refineries, the oil refineries, like it was Emerald City over there. Can you imagine how toxic this place is? Yeah, you know. And so I walk in, I make a left, I look to my left. There's a room, and that's Richie's room. Poster of Kiss, Farrah Fawcett in the. You know, red bathing suit, you know, typical 
you know, high school boys room. And then we were right there in the kitchen and John was on the wall phone, like this avocado green wall phone. And he's kind of like, you know, kind of waves to me. And Richie, who's very, very nice and, you know, you know, very, very accommodating, was said, well, uh, why don't you just come downstairs and, you know, I'll set you up, you know, for our session. And so, you know, I went down there and it was the laundry room with like, you know, it was literally the laundry room with some transoms, like muddy transoms around the side. And then um, for my, an old Formica table that must have been retired from the kitchen and this little keyboard that was kind of teetering on it, some amps buzzing. And finally, 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 John came down. He was obviously doing big business on the phone, whatever. Um, and um, I had a title in my back pocket. So we started fooling around, you know, writing this and that and the other thing. And I said, okay, I guess I better pull out the, the title. The title was You Give Love a Bad Name. Because I love, you know, I haven't talked about my mentor, Bob Crew, but he taught me about writing songs that have a lot of inner rhyming and irony. And having, once you have a title that has tells it all, the song just spills out of it, like a magic spell. And so John instantly responded, and he had had a song on his previous record called Shot Through the Heart. So he doesn't give up on his good material either. And uh, so, you know... Uh, you know, he's, he just instantly said, shot through the heart, and you're to blame. Darling, you give love a bad name. And, and, and the rest was history. It's so crazy. In a, in a, <laughs> in a laundry room. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, uh, uh, by 4 o'clock or after, like, 3, 3.30, school was out. There were already girls circling the house. You could see their ankles, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because we were kind of loud down there. And and I said, who's out there? He said, oh, that's our fans. Wow. Like, I mean, now now you'd have like an army of, uh, I mean, because of social media, you'd have everyone from every state around the area trying to get into that house. Well, it would have, it would have they, been unsafe for you guys to have. Well, later on when they were successful, then John bought a house and it was in like Red Bank or something. And to get out of the, co- it was a, at the end of the thing, there was a compound with a gate. And he'd have to be on the floor, you know, and I'd be like driving, you know, and they, and then they'd still chase my car and I was trying to get through lights and kind of, you know, you know, go all Princess Diana on it, you know, to get away, (laughs) you know, but I mean, they were relentless. Yeah. And Dorothea was like not happy about it. Oh, I know. Oh my God. Classic. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, but he's, when we're out, people still are coming up. He's so gracious. He'll take a picture with anybody that comes up, signs any autograph, never treats them bad because he says, you know what? They're my boss. Right. It's amazing. Um, Alice Cooper. When I met Alice Cooper, he he really wasn't, you know, um, happening, you know, career-wise. I, I think his previous record had sold something like 75,000 records. And uh, I was brought in, and um, you know, I said, "Okay, I'll do this." Because you see, at that time, I was trying to become a producer. So if people wanted my songs, then they'd have to take me as a producer. Nobody really wanted me as a producer because I'm a gay man, and yeah, co-write is like equality, but the producer is the guy with the biggest dick. 
the wow. boss and and a lot of you know bands and stuff like that who are very macho and all that they don't want a gay guy dick slapping him in the studio and i really felt that was the glass ceiling so of course they gave me the weirdos like alice cooper meatloaf joan jet Cher, you know because you know they were from you know they didn't care about that kind of stuff but i did have a hard time like let's say me producing van halen or you know all those kind of corporate rock right. dudes that were you know happening it was like i didn't fit in because you know whatever it was like a psychological thing i really felt that that ceiling so i i kind of arm twisted them and said okay well if you want me then i have to write the whole album with alice and then um you know he came and worked with me and we he explained that alice cooper is a character his he's really vincent fournier and alice cooper is a character he invented like you know Zig, ziggy stardust or something like that and so every song had very strict rules and i was used to that from kiss in his case he does very terrible things but he always has to pay the price he always has to be punished for what he does if he if he cuts off a baby's uh, doll head on stage then he has to go in the guillotine and lose his head and so everything was like that they're all morality plays his songs because he he was the son of a preacher man and he himself is a very spiritual you know person the sweetest person ever but he understood you know that you know he found a character that represented our dark side wow and yeah. that's why he's successful because he's very clear about his archetype and I think even if you and people who didn't who don't get it, they're not paying attention. They're just they're just viewing Alice Cooper as like what that yes. from from a picture. They're not really paying right. attention to that. But when I worked that's... with sorry, when I worked with Sandra Seacat, she when she was we were studying acting, she was explaining that there are archetypes in theatrical works, and you know, and they come from Greek and Roman mythology, Venus. Is you know, goddess of love. All this. There's Venus. There's Juliet. There's you know, Jean Harlow. There's Marilyn Monroe. And there's you know Gwen Stefani. She's her archetype is clear. We don't have to guess. We know what to expect from that archetype. That sweetness, the femininity, the you know all of that. You know, Alice Cooper. You know, there was, he looks like the devil. So there was always Pan. He was always the, you know, the kind of devilish person that was talking your, yeah, do the bad thing, you know, in literature and even the look of it. So his archetype was so clear. We didn't have to do, there's no guessing because I think human beings are hardwired, you know, to recognize these archetypes. So even if you're not part of Western culture, you know, they're hardwired to recognize it as well. Like we're hardwired to, if we see a snake in the in the side of our vision, we see something's you know squirreling, you know down. We jump away. You don't have to like know about snakes to know that that's not a good thing. Fly, right? Get away. And so, in the same way, for our own survival, we've been able to recognize who's the leader, who's the healer. Who's the comforter? Who's the warrior? Who should we follow into the battle? 
And so, you know, the most of the stars, the ones that are really big, have very distinct archetypes. Look at, you know, Medusa, snakes on head. Right. Who's who's that in our current archetypes? In a weird sort of way, it's kind of like Lady Gaga. Except exactly. Right. She actually literally yeah. has snakes coming out of her head. We're very clear on her, and we love her because her wickedness, you know, is we're drawn to it. And the, the, the great thing about her is that she embraces all the weirdos, all her little monsters. She has the biggest heart. And that's the thing with Alice and her, though, is that they both are, they, they do it so authentically. And that's really hard. It's hard to be, those are both really strong characters, but right. it's hard to make that not cheesy. It's hard to make that, the songs have to be phenomenal to pull that off. Exactly. They have to be structurally amazing and they have to be lyrically accurate. Well, or, or to, to be- do anything that has value that stands the test of time. Right. But even if somebody is weak, if their archetype is clear, they can still make it. Yeah. Because you hear a lot of like very thin songs, and then you go, "Well, who did that? Oh, that's so and so. Yeah. You know that. You know, featuring so and so, and it's like really. And then you then it all starts to make sense. Yeah, it's that idea of of. I always try to explain to young artists that you know pop stars are superheroes. It's that archetype. Yeah, archetype. You know, you have to view it as a superhero, and and when you see that stage production around that pop star, it's because they become a uh, they become a superhero or a, or a comic book character or something that's really strong that that is not human. You can't just be a regular human. I mean, there are some, but you can't really be just a regular human in in the middle, well, you know, headlining Staples Center. Doesn't it's stand like, the test of time, right? And so, you know, when you when we talk about Alice Cooper, he's the perfect example of an archetype. And we wrote these songs, you know, including Poison, and I got everybody I was working with to do me a favor and be on the record. Joan Jett, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi. And that gave the, the him some kind of new fresh blood credibility. But, you know, unfortunately, we had an A&R guy that was wanted to be a co-writer. And, in fact, Sony had very strict rules that A&R people could not co-write with the artists. And he wanted to be a co-writer. And I said, no, we need you to be objective and tell us if these songs suck. But he resented me. So when it came time to do the next record, okay, he went from 85,000 records. Um, oh, no, no, it was worse than that. It was like... 7,000 records, I mean, to four and a half million with me. Then when he came to make the next record, that guy who was buddy buddies with, you know, whatever, you know, management, whatever, talked them into like, we don't need Desmond Chow. So he fired, I didn't get rehired. And they, he wrote all the songs with Peter Collins, this kind of, you know, rock producer and Alice and Alice is such a passive wonderful person he didn't you know think he anything he didn't challenge it because his mind was on his golf game or whatever and he sold like 85,000 records from four and a half million yeah. and I had a vision for his next record I was going to go all nine inch nails with it I was going to go electronic I was going to go into the future I was already seeing it yeah. and um, 
they just made a bad version of our record with really weak songs and some castaways that we had written for that weren't good enough to be on trash. Do you know when you write a hit song? Do you know when it's a hit? I know when something like feels so right, you know, that it's just like, wow, how could it not be successful? But Bob Crew, my mentor, he was the one that co-wrote all the songs for the Four Seasons. And if anyone has seen Jersey Boys, he was the ultra, you know, kind of uh, gay producer. And um, he was my mentor. When after I left John Landau, I um, I worked with him as a solo artist for two years, and he we wrote thirty eight songs together. None of them really took off, but I could not have written all the songs I wrote without his tutelage. You know the power of the title being all everything because. Before, I'd just play some chords and start mumbling and hoping that my mumbling would sound like something, and then I'd build on that something. No, we wouldn't even start a song unless we had a a terrific title. Yeah. Then everything was spilled out. Not even just a concept, like the title. The title. The title. And I I still do dumb things, like start a song with somebody that has a great start, and we're going towards nothing. And then all of a sudden, we're there. There's no chorus. What is this all adding up to? Versus like waking up in Vegas, you know exactly what this. Oh like, yeah, you, you know when you're going into it, what kind of party song you're going into? Oh, yeah. or like you know, it gives it's pretty clear. Yeah, for sure. So so, Bob Bob Crew was like so important to my development. So like you know, I had all these mentors along the way that I really depended on, and you know, I still draw on their knowledge when I'm mentoring. I always give them credit and I share I share that when I do, you know, my master classes and stuff like that. I I like that there are a lot of people that don't the giving credit where credit's due throughout this whole conversation. You've said first names and last names. You've given me tidbits about every single person and they everybody around you must feel that kind of appreciation that you have for them. And that says a lot because I think a lot of people feel like they they deserve a certain amount of success and not that they've earned it and that they that they people feel like they did it on their own. It's I think it's important that you've you've shown this whole time it's it's inspiring to hear other people who feel like they need to it took a village for you to be this successful, that it took your mom yeah. going through the struggle, and then it took your mentors, and it mm-hmm. took your bandmates in 1970s in New York, and it took you know, the different managers you've had and different yeah. you know, co-writers along the way for it to be, you know, for you to be Desmond Child. It's, like, it's not just, it's, right. it's the archetype of, uh, of a songwriter. You've kind of become that for songwriters. Well, I never was somebody that w- was rested on my laurels, you know, that had a hit and thought, well, I'm cool. You know, I just like keep working like Diane. She doesn't care about any of her past hits. She only cares about the song she's writing at that moment. And that's how you have to be. I mean, do Picasso- you still feel that now? Do you still feel yes. like you have that it matters what your next song is? Yes. Right now? Yeah, I care. I go in there 100% and figure out the Rubik's. My problem is that I'm usually writing with people that aren't better than me. So, you know, they always say your song is as strong as its weakest writer. And so 
you know, I'm always in the position with a new artist, brand new, 22 years old. I'm teaching them how to write songs. Yeah, you're spending their time. So I'm not getting the feedback that I would get from a contemporary that's really throwing it at me, you know, so I can be challenged. I love writing with Antonina Armato and Tim James of Rock Mafia because they, 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 you know, they're, they're excellent. They're, every time Antonina writes a lyric, it's like, wow. You know, it's like she blows my mind. And Tim, he gets in front of the microphone to sing a top line. It's like, wow, it's already what he sings. We're editing together. That's the that's the that's what the artist learns how to sing. I mean, he gets it right the first time like that. Those are geniuses. And I'm like, I it makes me be better. And it's like, guys, I don't feel like I've contributed to this song. No, no, we couldn't have written. You know, we like you being here because otherwise we'd fight. You know, because I'd like side with one or the other, you know. And so, um, no, but I really, I said, by the end, I do make sure that I'm, I earn my keep. But that's what I love. That's challenging for me. And that's where I can grow and continue to be in contemporary music because those guys are living, breathing this, the music of the streets, you know, and pop and all that, like big time. The sounds, the shit's dialed up and it's like, Wow, sounds amazing. So, you know, I, I, I struggle with that, you know, to be able to, you know, and also living in Nashville for pop is a difficult thing, you know. So, but more and more people are moving there and all that because they did the math that, you know, if they want to have families and kids and all, it's better yeah. to be there and then take their trips here. There are a yeah. lot of pop writers there now. Claude lives there now. Claude Kelly. And, yeah, I heard that. Know, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of big writers, you know, in the mm-hmm. pop world in Nashville. But one of the things that Bob Crew always said a hit is, you know, like uh, it's it's like what a like the Bethlehem Star was probably not one star. It's probably a bunch of things that just kind of lined up, and all of a sudden there was like, you know, come all ye right. faithful, right? Um, it's the song, of course, and the marriage of the song with the archetype and the, the talents of the interpreter. Together, they make a strong like combination. But the management has to be right. The label has to be right. right. The promoter has to have just the right drugs to give to the you know, program director at the radio sure. <laughs> and the right strippers to call. I mean... All of that has to line up for something to be a hit. I mean, you know, that's why I'm like so odd when I see Max Martin just knocking them out of the park one out one every out, year, every year yeah. after the other. And last night uh, he wasn't able; he was the songwriter of the year again, and it was so cute because he went on the screen and he said, "Well, I'm so sorry I could not be there." Da, 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 you know, well, I'll see you next year. You know, and that was a big laugh. It's like, you're going to win again next year? Yeah. Give us a chance, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, but he's got it to, together and he's he's a genius. So his talent overrides sometimes even the talent of the person who's singing it. You know, he's like the producer's more important than the artist in a way. But These records were, sound amazing. But it goes back to what you said a little bit ago about that the charm of a writer Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's nicer than Max right. to so many people. And right. that's what, you know, when you're nice to people, 
People want to work with you. And if you're fun to hang out with, people want to right. spend time with you. And right. And, and then you'll write some songs because you're having a good time. And, and assuming you understand composition and all that, put that away for a second because, of course, you know that if you're a professional writer. And then if you're a good hang, it's like it's right. just, just keep hanging out and keep writing songs. And, and they, they they sort of flesh each other out. But well, the, not I, only is he a musical genius, but he's also just an exceptionally nice human. Somebody told me a beautiful story about Quincy Jones because they were a kind of a, kind of a fly on the wall when they were making Thriller. It was somebody that was in the room a lot, and he said um, that um, that Michael would do a take and just like you know give it his all, and then Quincy would say, "Oh my God, that was the the best singing I'd ever heard." That's incredible. Come in here. She says, what? No, no, no. You've got to come in here. I've got to give you a hug for how you just sang that. You know, so he would come in and get his hug, you know, and that was like such a, he understood the vulnerabilities and insecurities of that artist so well that he, you know, just showered him with love, showered him with love and, and compliments. And I hear that he's that way with everybody. It's like, you know, somebody does a take that's like goosebumpy, you know, and we usually want eight takes of goosebumpy so we can comp the best of the best yeah. of the best. And he'll make that person go in there and he'll just like go crazy on them. And, you know, I love that story. Yeah. You know, I don't think I'm that nice, you know, because I'm a little bit more Hungarian, which is you must, you must bark, you must bark hard. You know, yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, you sound like my grandpa for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like I'm sure. a bit more of a slave driver, and um, I don't know. Sometimes I've heard through second people that that people have said I'm difficult to work with. And it's like, what? You know, I don't think I'm difficult. I think I'm funny. You know, mm-hmm. but I also, you know, I when it's time to when we're in the in the final thing, it's like, yeah, come on, let's do this. Stay focused. No, you can't go and make a phone call. Yeah, it's work. Yeah, I remember once Ricky Martin just like, you know, kept going out to make phone calls. And I I took the phone away from him and locked him in the thing. And then he said, well, I have to go to the bathroom. I said, piss right there. Piss right there. (laughs) So he took all the Evian bottles and started pissing in there. So then one of the engineers in the studio to be a goof, he got some beer and shit and put it in one and started, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to freak us out. (laughs) But I mean, but that's because of a story that Bob Ezrin told me with Alice Cooper when they were making uh, Welcome to My Nightmare or something. He, um, Alice was so like on drugs and shit. He chained him to a chair. And made him sing this, like, one of the biggest songs, Welcome to My with chained, in chains, shackled to a chair. And then once they taped him to a wall with duct tape and put the mic up and made him sing like that. That feels like such a different generation. I'm sure those artists still exist, but maybe not. I mean, that doesn't... Hey, those records are still standing the test of time. Yeah, maybe that's why. That's sure. why, because yeah. it was like they fucking were feeling it, whatever. Yeah. And and remember going back to when we talked about act uh, singing being like acting. Well, yeah, kind of. You know that a lot of uh, what we know as popular music came out of opera. So they were singing this very complicated music, but they also the best, most successful ones were known to be great actors. 
And um, there is that to it. But I think that when you're the real deal, like Amy Winehouse or Frank Sinatra, you know, it's like, it's not that hard because you're a true genius and you have the taste and you have the skill to knock it out of the park in like one take, you know, and that, you know, unfortunately, one of the big, biggest problems, it goes back to our education in this country. Starting two generations ago, the arts were yanked out from under us. And um, then the only people that got lessons were the people that could afford to get private or they, they taught themselves somehow. So this, this uh, terrible focus on reading, writing, and arithmetic is to the detriment of our creativity. No doubt. So, you know, I see my sons on video games and all that, all that creativity, it's not theirs. They're just riding the wave of somebody else's creativity. Do you make them play instruments? I don't make them, no. I, we gave them lessons. They've had lessons since they were like two years old. Right. You know, and so we set up their rec room with the drum set and all that, and now they're jamming, and I'm hearing them downstairs and they're playing. You give love a bad name, and it's like my boy. I say nothing. I say nothing, dude. That's like that's got to be the most proud moment for a dad to hear your kids learning your songs. You know? Yeah, that I think they are proud of me, even though they do nothing but criticize me. Don't say that. You're laughing too loud. Why are you wearing that? You. Those are. You know. Those are. You know. That's not what that's not cool, you know, like constantly like criticizing me. I'm feeling like bullied. <laughs> you got bullied by your own kids. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, I mean, I can't thank you enough. I I, I feel like I now I wanna spend the next six hours talking about more of these people and more of your journey because it it's so it's it's inspiring to know that the journey doesn't end. A lot of people stop at some point, but I like hearing that you're still pushing to get another hit and that you're still working across the industry. And we didn't even get into the other things. And the fact that you're doing a lot of, you know, you seem to be involved in all these act activists Things, whether it's for songwriters or, or whether it's for Hungary or whether it's for gay rights or whether it's for it's you still are you are that archetype. I mean, I'm I'm considered a top liner. I, I play instruments. I write songs, but I'm considered a top liner. And it's like it's really just following in your footsteps. There aren't a lot of people because before you it was. There weren't that many people that I know were jumping around from band to band, artist to artist. There really aren't that many people who were who were leading away the way you are. And it's like it's it's really cool to sit down and and get to know you. I I know that you know we've been in the same probably vicinity a million times, but uh, can I ask you a important. favor? Can yeah. I ask you a favor? Sure. Don't ever say you're a top liner. It's the worst, right? It's like. But people consider you, like, don't you think people say, like, even though you play instruments and you could write a song alone, and, and, and the lyric and melody is the song. It's become a terrible uh, division and only ever say you're a songwriter. Deal. And may those that do the drums 
you know, they can call themselves the track guy. And we're the songwriter. And we're the songwriter. Let's shake on it. Okay. The deal. I thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to Jeff Sparger, David Silberstein from Mega House Music, and Michael White. Here's a sneak peek of next week's And the Writer Is. Dang, like, I don't really like the person that I am right now. Like, I don't like the way that I'm feeling. I can't understand it. You know? I couldn't understand it. Uh, and I was like, so I was like, why do I, why am I running away from these feelings? Like, I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm, you're okay to feel sad and you're okay to feel anxious. You're okay. Like, you're in a, you're in a business. We're in a business that's, that's, it's so beautiful, but it's hard. It's hard. You know, do you know how many people like want to try to do this shit? Yeah. You know, people I see every day sending me fucking MP3s on tour singing to me at meet and greets. I'm like, it breaks my heart because I'm like, there's so many talented people. Like, there's so many talented kids or, or older people that, that this is like a blessing. Like, for us to be doing this is a blessing. We forget. Totally. We get caught up. And it's okay. It's a fucked up business, but it's okay to have moments. Every day is not going to be great. So at the time, I was like trying to understand. I was like, I hate myself like this. Like, I don't want to feel this way. And I was like angry at myself. And then I was like, wow, I'm like, I, I, instead of like trying to help myself, I'm like, I'm like victimizing myself, you know? And I went into the studio and the session was set up and I, and it was John Bellion, alias Frequency. And I said, I, there's a quote that I love about monsters. And, it fucking that was it's the song was originally before Eminem did it. obviously he was talking about his monsters um in the darkest of my times a little light began to shine woke up and I realized that imperfection is divine and this creepy heart of mine it keeps tiptoeing on the line but I know it'll be just fine cause I'm friends with the monsters that are under my bed I get along with the voices inside of my head you're trying to save me, stop holding your breath. And you think I'm crazy, well that's nothing new. And it's a song about, this is who I am and I'm pretty fucked up, but I'm okay with myself. Yeah. And it's about like looking at yourself in the mirror and being like, you know what, I'm pretty fucked up, you're fucked up too. Don't try to save me because I'm okay with me being the way that I am. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.